0: Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. What awaits you in this episode? Well, all those aspects I still wanted to tell you about Cologne at the times of the Frankish Merovingian dynasty. This time I would like to do without a random fact about Cologne and beginning, but briefly say something else. The knowledge I present here, I have of course not worked out myself from scratch. All this is based on the excellent and generational work of numerous historians and archaeologists and other historical scientists who have compiled all their findings into into books or works or essays. I've always tried to acknowledge this at the appropriate place in the course of this podcast. For Roman Cologne, the volume on the history of the city of Cologne by Werner Eck served as a valuable basis for the first 22 episodes of this podcast. For Frankish Cologne, the book with the simple title, Colonia Stadt der Franken, which means Colonia, city of the Franks, by Karl Dietzmar and Markus Trier serves us as the first main source of information par excellence who have painstakingly compiled every small and large of the few traditions and sources from this period. With Marcus Trier we have an outstanding archaeologist as the author of this work, who is now even the director of the Roman Germanic Museum in Cologne, which only highlights his expertise in this field. It is important for me to share this with you, and I also realize that I cannot make this appreciation 100% satisfactory therefore, as in this case, only in excerpts. I'm a studied historian, but with this podcast, I work like a classical high school student in the history class. The time to go into archives myself or to torture myself through the Latin text of a Gregory of Tours, I simply do not have the time or rather the capacity for as a one-man show. Although some primary sources like Gregory of Tours, I really do read excerpts every now and then, But to do that all the time, well, that would go beyond the workload of that podcast, which is supposed to be my hobby and it's not like I don't have a real job and a private life. For this podcast, I mainly read secondary literature and present it to you summarized and edit it as infotainment. By the way, I have always published a selection of my bibliography for this podcast on my homepage from the very beginning. So enough of that. Let's get into the episode. Cologne remained significant in the Merovingian period, that is, from the 6th to the 8th century. How did Cologne continue to develop within the Frankish Empire? The Merovingian dynasty, established by Clovis continued to rule over the Franks and their conquered territories in Gaul and along the Rhine. Only there is a little twist here, which runs the risk of complicating a lot of things for our podcast once again. The Frankish Empire had come into being because Clodwick had conquered it together in the late 5th and early 6th century. It was not in that sense the Empire of the Franks, but his Clodwick's empire and that of his dynasty. So it is absolutely in the logic of the Franks that after Clodwick's death in 511, The rule of his kingdom was divided among his sons equally. Often in the literature spoken about a division of the Frankish Empire. To be honest, this is what eventually happened most of the time in terms of real politics, but in the Frankish sense, the empire always remained one and belonged together. Only the rule was divided among the respective heirs. So when Clotwig's four sons each got their piece of the cake of their father's empire in 511, They did not legally found their own empires. The same idea had been conceived only about a hundred years earlier by the Roman Empire itself when it was divided into west and east. Only with the side effect that the western Roman Empire then fell around the year 475. So here the Franks took up the great but long gone model. And the game went on and on. Whenever a Frankish king died, his kingdom was divided among his sons, or even better, the remaining brothers squabbled over it. You can imagine what a constant struggle for power that must have been. Or oh, one of the sons was not satisfied with the division of power and created discord in the kingdom. All that, it happened. It would be a pointless endeavor for this podcast to now constantly list all the names of the new rulers of all the Frankish subkingdoms, or even the individual territories themselves and who exactly ruled which territories. To explain the succession of Clodvig alone is extremely tiring with four sons. I post for you a corresponding collection of maps in the companion post of this episode. Then you will understand well how often and bitterly sons, brothers, and has not seen thought for power in the Frankish Empire of the Merovingians. There were phases when the empire was divided between up to four successors, then sometimes one succeeded in reuniting the Frankish kingdom under a single king. As for example Clotha I, a son of Clothwick who succeeded in 558 and had outlived all of his brothers. But after only three years he also died and the empire disintegrated again. So we see a tedious work and totally out of place for a podcast about the city of Cologne. We don't really care about the division of the Frankish Empire, because one thing always remained unchanged. Cologne remained part of the Frankish Empire. The constant fighting within the Merovingian dynasty gave some big advantages, though. For it becomes clear that if the central power, so the Frankish kingship, is often fragmented or internally in conflict, this can only mean one thing. Regional elites could take advantage of this. In Cologne, this was expressed above all in the fact that the church, with its bishop of Cologne, gained additional secular power. And man, we really have to get to the topic, but that deserves its own episode. Next episode, I promise. Then we will talk about a prominent Cologne bishop from the early 7th century, after whom a separate district of Cologne is still named today. But let's talk about society and economy, so the parts we haven't covered yet. What was society like within Frankish Cologne? Well, it is obvious that there were Frankish and Gallo-Roman inhabitants. In Cologne, the Gallo-Romans probably constitute the majority of the population for quite a while. However, by the 8th century at the latest, Frankish and Gallo-Roman inhabitants were to merge. Language did the inhabitants of Cologne actually speak at that time, between the 6th and the 8th century? This is of course difficult to determine due to the spare sources available, but a development which also lasts until the 8th century will also have led to the following in Cologne as it happened to the rest of the Rhineland. Latin and the Frankish language merged into a new language, the Old High German language. This old High German, oh my, if you think today's standard German is hard, try to understand a word of it as a native speaker like I am. Want a taste? I know that doesn't help those who know absolutely no German. But try to listen carefully and at least to hear the differences in sound. So, here's a sentence from the 8th century in Old High German. Kilaubu in Kottfata... Himilis enti Erda. So that was the old High German. Now in High German, the language spoken in Germany today and the language I grew up with. Ich glaube an Gott, den Vater, den Allmächtigen, den Schöpfer des Himmels und der Erde. So, did you notice some differences? I hope you did, because that is a lot of change. It even has more words than the first version. What the sentence says in German is simple. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That's the sentence I read to you out loud in Old High German and Modern High German. If you were to read the Old High German text in front of you, which you can't because it's a podcast and not a video, you would recognize at first glance many of the words and also because of the sentence structure a similarity to Latin. Language develops over a long period of time. English has also undergone major changes over the last few centuries. I am absolutely no expert in the development of languages, but I still find the subject really fascinating. Well, the ethnic composition of the Cologne city population and how they communicated, that we have not checked off. The Franks and Gallo-Romans increasingly became the medieval Germans, as for the beliefs of the people in the city, religion, well, as discussed earlier, we will cover that in the next episode. Let's move on to the legal status that you could have as a person in Frankish Cologne. Just as once in the era of the Roman Empire, not all people were equal in rights and duties, thus especially women, children, foreigners and slaves had, had much fewer rights than male citizens. However, it is difficult to find out the legal status of people in the city of Cologne at that time. Why? Well, early medieval society was a largely agrarian society, in stark contrast to the urbanized culture of the Romans. Over 90% of the people in that time lived in the countryside, especially the Frankish rulers and the associated nobility. Having conquered a large empire in Central Europe, had not changed Frankish self-image of being primarily peasants. Frankish rulers reside in many cities for a time, but they were not really comfortable there. They preferred to stay on their farms in the countryside. The many Frankish peasant settlements around Cologne, which developed during this time, are a good example of this. (sighs) That's also a topic I should address. Of course, there were Franks who lived in the city of Cologne, but not all of them wanted to breathe the city air. In the early middle ages, no cities were founded. They were, without exception, if they still existed at all, like our Cologne, a remnant of antiquity. It was not until around the year 1000 that cities were again to be founded and prosper in central Europe. In the early middle ages, large cities such as Cologne, although no longer as populous as before, we presented a foreign body in the centuries of the early Middle Ages, which were accompanied by a not inconsiderable decline in population. And this is precisely an important point. Globally speaking, no matter where in the world you are listening to me, dear listener, we are all living in a time, in the beginning of the 21st century, in which we have experienced massive population growth worldwide. Even though in Germany, for example, the number of births have been stagnant for 40 years, we still have the largest number of people that there has ever been in Germany. However, the period of the early Middle Ages experienced a reverse development. The population decline already occurred in antiquity itself. Why this population decline occurred? Well, that is what historians argue about to this day. Wars, wars. Plague epidemics, political instability, and probably a short little ice age which affected the climate of Europe massively negative and led many before fertile areas of Central Europe deserted. Now, these are all possible reasons which do not have to interest us at this point, only that there was an enormous population decline in Western Europe. And of course, this also affected the everyday life of the people living there. Many cities like Trier, Mainz or even Rome itself experienced a massive population decline during this time. People were drawn back to the countryside, back to a rural existence. What this meant for the technological achievements from ancient times, I think I do not need to mention. The ancient advanced civilization, whether of the Greeks or the Romans, had always been based on urban structures but these had now largely disappeared throughout the continent. Only in the eastern Mediterranean region did they continue to exist, like in the Byzantine Empire, the former eastern part of the Roman Empire. But that, as I said, was far from the scene. The cities that remained in existence despite this general development, such as in the Frankish Empire, especially cities like Paris, Rams, or Cologne, represented an exception in the Frankish Empire. They were real exotics. What must a Frankish peasant from the surrounding countryside alone have thought when he must have seen the impressive building of the Church Saint-Gerion at the gates of the Cologne city wall, or the city wall of Cologne itself, which was 8 meters high? Between the 5th and 8th centuries, that very element developed in Europe which was to be stylistic for the Middle Ages, the formation of Landlordism, if that's the right way to pronounce it, and the feudal system. Nevertheless, let's try to take a look at Cologne's society of that time. There were also different classes in the Frankish society. Strictly speaking, there were three. And no, it's not these three classes that we are told about in every history class about the Middle Ages and Early Modern Age, clergy, nobility and peasants. That would develop much, much later than now in the time we are in which is the Frankish Empire of the Merovingians in the 6th to 8th century. The three classes in the Frankish Empire of the Merovingians were divided according to the degree of freedom. There were the free, the semi-free, and the unfree, like slaves. One was born into the class, but it was possible to ascend as well as descend to one class or another. In particular, a career of office in the church or service at the Frankish royal court could allow for social advancement. On the other hand, however, financial hardship or capture in war could also cause a Frankish nobleman to descend socially. And this is remarkable, that there was still social movability, because such a thing would not have happened in the later Middle Ages, for example. Those were different times, and the Middle Ages were a thousand years long. The problem is, due to the sparse sources, we can't even begin to understand how exactly this took place in Cologne. Once again, only archaeology can help us with this topic to a certain extent. I must have said it a hundred times, Cologne did not simply perish as a city when the rule of the Romans in this region collapsed in the middle of the 5th century. I only say this so often because for a long time there was precisely this thesis which has since been completely refuted scientifically. What we do know is that in Cologne a gallo roman ruling class continued to play a major role in shaping the administration of the city. The city wall, built by the Romans for example, had to be kept in repair, so that the public buildings, as long as the relevant knowledge was still available, to keep them in shape. Above all the fact that Cologne was already a bishop's seat of the Christian church in Roman times, allows many conclusions to be drawn. Quite a few ecclesiastical dignitaries and officials will have lived in the city. These, of course, had to be taken care of. Therefore, we can assume numerous servants. The first monasteries and convents were founded in Cologne as early as the time of the Frankish Empire of the Merovingians. I would like to talk about this in, you guessed it, the next episode. Only so much is said. At that time, the Entry into the monastery was allowed only to the nobility, accordingly was also the claim to the standard of living in the monastery. Fathers were only too happy to send their second or third-born sons and daughters to the monasteries to prevent inheritance disputes. As we have learned, this was a characteristic of this time in the Frankish nobility. I would like to come to the churches, clerics, monasteries and foundations of convents in the next episode. The numerous Frankish and other Germanic newcomers to the city integrated themselves into the urban society and worked as merchants and craftsmen, such as in glass and metal processing for example on the Heumarkter, Haymarket area, which we dealt with two episodes ago. Quite a few of them were what we would call self-employed professionals. In that period, Cologne was thus economically characterized by several sectors, the church system and crafts and trade. As in ancient times, Cologne was of immense importance as a marketplace for the whole region. Another access to the social structure offers us the Lex Salica, mentioned in the last episode, the collection of laws that Colotic had created, or collected. There, for example, is defined how much Wergelds one had to pay if one had killed someone. An atonement money thus which is the definition of Wehrgeld. Whoever killed an unfree man had to pay 45 shillings to his owner. If you killed a semi-free man, you had to pay 100 shillings. Whoever killed a free man had to pay 200 shillings to his family. But here too, there were nuances as to who killed whom and how. Whoever killed a free woman who was still of childbearing age had to pay 600 shillings. That is three times as much. If she was no longer of chart bearing age, only 200 shillings had to be paid. Wow, quite, um, quite some standards. It is impossible to compare these sums of money with today. The way of life of the people was too different from today. Money was not yet what it is today. But it is certain that all these fines were deliberately set so high that No one could afford financially to murder another. This served as a deterrent. I don't want to get lost in legal texts, but please allow me one more example. What happened if you were caught stealing pigs? Well, here also extremely precise differentiation was made. If you stole a piglet, you had to pay 3 shillings. If you stole a piglet that was already without a mother, you only had to pay 1 shilling. If you stole a sow or injured her, you had to pay 7 shillings. For a 1 year old pig, it was 3 shillings, for a 2 year old, 15 shillings. All these amounts were valid only up to 2 stolen pigs. If you stole 3 or more, you had to pay 35 shillings. And this goes on and on, whether the boar was already castrated or not, for example up to really large numbers of stolen pigs. Steal 25 pigs or more, you were due to 62 and a half shillings. What a detailed and sophisticated interpretation of the law. You would think the Germans descended from the Franks in part. Oh wait, they do. Let's take a closer look to the surrounding countryside and the peasant life around Cologne. Agriculture had always been an essential part of Cologne's economy, also in Roman times. With the Franks, we have an ethnic group that mainly practiced agriculture. So it's time to take a look at the countryside around Cologne. In previous episodes, I had already mentioned that many former Roman estates were abandoned. Those that remained were visibly developed into fortified settlements, in turn, many Frankish settlers had already settled on the fallow fields in Roman times. As far as agriculture was concerned, there was no technological change from ancient times. The Franks had already adopted the cultivation techniques of the Romans before they came to power in the Rhineland and in Gaul. Wine, grain, fruit, too, were cultivated by the Franks in the same way as the Roman ville rusticae, country estates, before them. And anyone who sees the vineyards on the Middle Rhine today, when you take a ferry, is looking at a tradition that has been practiced without interruption for 2000 years, and mainly still with the same techniques as 2000 years before. Well, maybe with some modern fertilizers. The life of the farmers in the surrounding countryside was the same as for the next 1,500 years before the invention of the tractor. The way of working was dictated by the seasons. The physical work was hard and exhausting for everyone, no matter if you worked as a free farmer, farmhand, or day laborer. Compared to today's industrialized and highly mechanized agriculture, the effort and human labor input was enormous, but the yield of the harvest was very small compared to these efforts. If you did not push all your strength as a farmer in the work on the field and in the stable, You risk starvation in the next winter, diseases or the social descent into still much deeper poverty. Not infrequently, this happened despite all human efforts. I do not want to paint the picture of the miserable peasants and the dark middle ages here, but the consciousness of this rural population and their beliefs, which in the middle ages made up almost 95% of all inhabitants of central Europe, was characterized by the fear that. At any time, extreme weather events, a failing harvest, could directly and immediately threaten further survival. Every negative event and result of your own work as a farmer was also interpreted religiously with the increasing Christianization. If the harvest failed, you believed directly in the wrath of God upon yourself. And yet, especially here in the countryside, pagan customs often persisted even longer than... For example, it must have been with the Cologne city population within the city walls, who became Christians way earlier. In the course of time, the church skillfully managed to replace often pagan rituals of the peasantry with Christian ones. Quite a few practices or saints of farmers in the Middle Ages were of pagan origin. To litigate a field to make God gracious for a good harvest, the Romans and Germanic tribes had already done that, only with the pagan deities. Many rural Frankish settlements arose in this period, in the 5th to 7th century, in the area surrounding the once former Roman city of Cologne. Why is this important for the history of Cologne? Well, these Frankish rural settlements and villages make up not a small part of Cologne city area today. All those parts of the city that end with the suffix Heim are mostly of Frankish origin. This applies to the entire settlement area of the Franks. Those who are not familiar with Cologne may know the city of Mannheim in southwestern Germany. If you are from Cologne or know your way around here, you will notice how many names of today's Cologne's districts suggest a Frankish origin with the suffix Heim at the end. So, hello to all from the city districts of Ostheim, Merheim, Mauenheim, Mühlheim, Buchheim and Stammheim. The suffix Heim, this is H-E-I-M, simply means home. Mostly these places are named after the founder of one of these settlements. And since the Saxons were also of Germanic origin, we know something similar from the Anglo-Saxon area with the suffix ham like nottingham or birmingham which basically means home of the notting family or home of the birming clan something like that very simplified expressed of course later place names with the endings hausen this is h-a-u-s-e-n and the suffix hofen this is h-o-f-e-n appear which translated into english means court or precisely farmyard once again, a reference to the predominantly agrarian character of these settlements. We find a city district in Cologne with the name Westhofen, for example. Or also the name elements that end with the suffix RAT or ROT. This is R A T with an H sometimes at the end or R O D. RAT or ROT simply means clear forest land in English. And that indicates that at this place, forest area was cleared for agriculture. So hello then to Cologne's districts of today's Ratz or Rodenkirchen. These name examples are by far no proof that all these Cologne districts I just mentioned are already developed as villages in the Frankish period. Often the evidence for their existence can only be found in documents from the High Middle Ages because previous sources are not available to us, but maybe they were Frankish. But their names certainly give us the circumstantial evidence that it might have been a Frankish settlement in the beginning. Let's just take a look at two of today's Cologne districts, of which we know for sure that they already existed in this period under the rule of the Merovingians in the Frankish Empire, as those peasant villages. The first is Müngersdorf. Müngersdorf is located deep in the west of present-day city of Cologne. The fact that many of the Frankish settlements were built along the old Roman highways is of course no coincidence, but deliberately intended. Thus, Münglesdorf is also located directly on the western Roman highway of the city of Cologne. Anyone who followed this road eastward into the city, then as now, would eventually arrive directly at the Heumarkt, the market, without any detours. This was the place where many of the new Frankish citizens had settled within the city walls. But here, deep in the west of today's Cologne, already in Roman times, In Müngersdorf, there had been a large Roman estate here, but it had been administered by Frankish owners before, at the end of the Roman rule here. How do we know this? Well, you can guess again, there are gravestones in that area. so there is no other way. Most of the houses of this period were built of wood and clay. Great materials indeed, but not predestined to exist after a millennium and a half. Probably about 30 people lived here at the same time and farmed here in that period of the Merovingian dynasty. It is also interesting to see how people were buried here. At the beginning of Frankish rule, of course, they were classically equipped with grave goods like weapons and jewelry. But then you see the progressive Christianization here as well when time goes on. This means no more grave goods and an orientation of the buried dead in a west-east axis. The dead were supposed to look towards Jerusalem, which is roughly seen from Cologne, and lies at the very great distance in the east. We can speak of luck that grave robbers were hardly at work here. Not at all early medieval cemeteries we have this luck. From the nevertheless rich grave goods from the early period, we can assume that the peasantry living here was well off. The good quality of the soil and the good connection to the city were also good conditions. Until well after its incorporation to Cologne, the city district Müngersdorf was to remain dominated by agriculture until the early 20th century. Today Müngersdorf is home to Cologne's most famous lawn. For it is here in the Müngersdorf Stadium that Cologne's biggest professional soccer team plays in the first division. Well. At least at the time this episode was produced. Let's hope it stays that way. Now last but not least, I would like to mention a Frankish settlement on the right bank of the Rhine. It is located in today's city district of Ports. Above all, if here is an inhabitant of Ports and should listen to this episode, he or she could become now mad at me. After all, the town of Ports, was not incorporated into Cologne until 1975. For the non-German listeners of this podcast, the people of the city district of Ports are something like the Texans of Cologne. Once an independent and proud city in the south of Cologne, on the right side of the Rhine, it was nevertheless sucked up by the metropolis of Cologne, which grew in the post-war period. And we will certainly come to ports more often in the course of this podcast. Here, near Heath, a Frankie settlement was found in 1973. Teenagers had discovered it by chance while playing. Through a nearby gravel mining, the settlement area had come to light again after 1,500 years. Here too, an agricultural enterprise had probably settled which was surrounded by a small village. Four pit houses were found here that were built in the same way as they had been on the Heumarkt, which served as workshops or warehouses. These one-story houses, covered with a thatched gable roof, were almost square and measured around 12 square meters, the size of a bedroom in a Cologne city center apartment, and that is not exactly big. The nice thing about this find is that numerous everyday objects were found here, cups, glasses, pottery, animal bones and metal objects like nails and knives. Probably the inhabitants of this settlement were cattle breeders to a large extent. Their direct proximity to the heath alone allows this assumption. By the way, you can see many of these Frankish everyday objects in the Roman Germanic Museum near Cologne Cathedral. So that should be everything I wanted to check off about Frankish Cologne during the Merovingian period. It's hard to believe, but there are a lot of things I couldn't put into this episode. Then we'll just do a quick run-through. Here we go. What else happened in our period of investigation, the Merovingian dynasty? First, that Cologne remained important in the Frankish Empire, shown by the fact that coins were minted in Cologne by the Frankish king Theudebert I in the year 540. These were minted entirely according to Eastern Roman model. So, you see, the Roman Empire always kind of lived on, even though in a very smaller version. Second, in the year 557, the Saxons invaded the Rhineland. Yes, right, those Saxons. Just not all of them went to England. The Saxons who threatened Cologne in the year 557 also originate from this West Germanic Association of Peoples, which settled among other places in today's Westphalia, and what is now by no coincidence the German federal state of Lower Saxony. This part of the Saxons did that at the end of the migration of peoples. They are, in their appearance, somewhat like the classical Germanic peoples as in the times of Caesar. The Saxons in Westphalia and on the right bank of the Rhine have no central government as now the Franks had it, for example. Countless tribes fight among themselves and go on raids. Although the Saxon tribes are formally independent, they are still obliged to pay tribute to the Frankish Empire. While they still attack the Rhineland and Cologne, well, the backgrounds to this would be much too long to present here. Like internal rivalries within the Merovingian dynasty, briberies, etc. To make a long story short, the Saxons cannot conquer the well-fortified Cologne, They don't even try it. However, the same cannot be said of the much smaller Deutz on the other side of the Rhine. Deutz is then sacked. We will come to the Saxons in detail in the future. For in the not so far away future of the chronology of this podcast, none other than Karl the Große or Charles the Great or Charlemagne alone would wage war with them almost continuously for 30 years. Again, we only know about these events through the historian and bishop Gregory of Tours. It is interesting to note here that he refers to the former Fort Deutz as a divitia Civitas. This is Latin for Municipality of Deutz. This is an indication that Deutz is now regarded in the Frankish Empire as detached from Cologne and as its own, well, not as a city, but as its own municipality. This may be due to the fact that In the past, Deutz was taken over by the Franks some years earlier than the city of Cologne itself on the other bank of the Rhine. This way, a separation of both parts could have come about. But this is perhaps thought by me also too much from the today's view, because the Romans themselves had not officially seen Deutz as part or an extension of Cologne, but simply as a fort in Germanic enemy territory that was on the opposite side of Cologne. Be that as it may, because it might get now too complicated. Of course, we will continue to follow the development of todays areas of Cologne on both sides of the Rhine with great interest. Well, unfortunately, that's it. The sources are just very thin in this period. Don't worry, from the 9th century onwards, everything will be better again. Because then we have more and more the opposite problem, namely too many sources. So I found this episode a bit unstructured myself. It was just the topics that I still had on my mind, and that I researched. Next time we will approach the matter in a more structured way. Then we'll deal with a famous Cologne man from the early 7th century, the bishop Kunibert. Using his biography as an example, we will then learn how Christianity became established in the city, and above all, how the office of the Bishop of Cologne also gained immense secular and political power. And we will look at how the first church buildings developed in Cologne, and this will also finally, finally lead us to this mysterious and omniscient blood column in the Church of St. Gerion because in the year 612. The Frankish King the II visits Cologne. Since Saint Geryon serves the Franks at the royal court next to the Praetorium, he will of course pay a visit to this building. Ah, this will be a nice little saga to talk about. Until then, stay faithful for me. Thanks for listening. I believe the episode is quite too long again, but recommend me to others and hey, Follow me on Instagram, Facebook or even Twitter now. The algorithm in social media is unfortunately so ruthless, I always try to post interesting posts with good texts that explain a lot, but often those posts they don't show up in your feed, so you might have to search for them actively. So as always, all the links to them in the show notes. Until then, auf wiedersehen.